How do you go from watching one of the most iconic movies in your lifetime, I'm talking about Star Wars, everyone, and then being asked to write for the novels? That's what happened to this week's Writer in Residence, so stay tuned for more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 513 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, which is the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. Now, I read a really interesting blog post recently about sending query letters to agents from the point of view of an agent. Always interesting, right? It's on the website of Bookends Literary Agency, and I'll put the link in the show notes. And, you know, it can actually be harsh reading, but I think it's important. Basically, this literary agent, Jessica Faust, or Faust says that you shouldn't expect a personal note or or feedback if she decides to reject your query or pitch. She receives around 500 queries every month, and if she were to respond to each one personally, she wouldn't have any time to do her job. Essentially, you need to accept the rejection and move on to a different agent. As Jessica says, the truth is you don't want to know why your book was rejected. You want me to give you revisions so you can fix it and sell it. Those are two different things. So yes, it's quite harsh, but good to know. As a writer, you will unfortunately sometimes get rejections. It's just part of life. Best-selling crime author and Australian Writer Centre presenter Candace Fox says that she received over 200 rejection letters before she finally became a published author. But she persisted, right? And now she is a number one New York Times best-selling author. If you want to find out more about the publishing process, then check out our course, Inside Publishing, What You Need to Know to Get Published. It's a comprehensive course about how the business of publishing works worldwide so you can be informed and well-positioned, you know, either for dealing with publishers or for independent publishing as well. This course will help you understand what is going to work for you and what your goals are and also your rights as an author and, of course, you know, just the best approach for your personality and your book and so on. You can find out more at writercenter.com.au slash publishing. Now, I have a fun fact for you that might help you answer a question or two at your next pub trivia. Did you know that the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, was written by an American woman named Sarah Hale, who, among many other things, she's a busy lady, was also largely responsible for the establishment of Thanksgiving, well, the Thanksgiving holiday in the USA. But I digress. Sarah also wrote novels and poetry and was editor for the Ladies Magazine. It was, that's what it was called, Ladies Magazine. And then the extremely influential journal, Godie's Ladies Book, until her retirement when she was 89 years old. But here's the fun fact. The opening lines of Mary Had a Little Lamb were the first words recorded by Thomas Edison on his newly invented phonograph. And it was the first time that an English poem was ever recorded. So from humble beginnings, Mary Had a Lamb has found a place in history. There you go. Use that in your next pub trivia or to wow your friends. 
Now, I also wanted to remind you about the awesome event that we've got coming up, which is part of our Focus On series. Remember, these are short evening seminars, so just one evening, where we focus on a particular aspect of writing and just go deep into it. So far, we've had focus on openings of your novels. We've had focus on the middles, the second act. So surprise, surprise, this one is about focus on endings. You guessed it, the climax and resolution of your novel. And if you missed the first two, don't worry, you can go and have a look on our website um, because you will be able to purchase them as well. So don't worry if you've missed out. This is a great chance to discover everything you need to know to write a compelling ending to your story and, of course, to ask questions if you attend. So it's an evening seminar, all done online via Zoom. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash focus. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of Super Spy Science by Catherine Harkup to give away. It's been 50 years since the first James Bond film was made, but of course, before them were Ian Fleming's series of novels, first published in 1953. So this week's book giveaway is Super Spy Science from Karen Harkup, and it explores everything science, death and tech in the world of 007. Since Ian Fleming first published Casino Royale in 1953, Secret Service agent James Bond has thrilled and delighted readers and filmgoers the world over, quickly becoming one of the world's favourite secret agents. The character has been through some changes and had a few ups and downs, but his popularity endures, and the film franchise is currently the fifth highest grossing series in history. Now, I know a lot of people love James Bond, And so I'm very thrilled to offer this book. I have three copies to give away, Super Spy Science by Catherine Harkup. Just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions for your chance to win. Entries close on Monday, the 21st of November. But if you're at that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. So that's writerscentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week this week is breatharian. So B-R-E-A-T-H-A-R-I-A-N. So breatharian. I honestly can't believe this is real, but a breatharian is a person usually inspired by religious zeal who attempts to obtain all their nutritional needs from light and air, usually supplemented by small amounts of food and drink. There is a Latin word which means the same thing, which is inedia, I-N-E-D-I-A. And obviously, medical professionals strongly advise you not to practice inedia or breatharianism. We all need to eat to survive. And really, who would want to give up banoffee pie, right? Breatharian. And that was the word of the week. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Sean Williams is author of 50 books for readers of all ages and over 140 short stories across numerous genres. His latest book is the middle grade novel, Honour Among Ghosts. Sean has also written six novels in the Star Wars universe, with The Force Unleashed debuting as number one on the New York Times bestseller list. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. My pleasure, Valerie. Thank you for having me. Now, your latest book, what a what a great story, Honour Among Ghosts. So for those people who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, tell us what it's about and what age group you're aiming for. Well, it's about um, four children who are trapped in a town over winter. The town is completely snowed in uh, and they are unable to leave. And these include uh, a mixture of children ranging from rich to poor. And uh, in this small town, uh, a series of thefts take place and innocent people in the town are blamed for it. Um, it seems to be a, a like a bit of a Robin Hood scenario, uh, people stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Uh, but one of the children's parents is accused of these crimes and she sets out with the help of the others to prove her father innocent and uh, exposes a much bigger conspiracy than she imagined. It's, a, it's, it's written to be um, a, a good for 10 year olds. And up. And by up, I mean there's no no limit. No, <laughs> there it, isn't. Yeah. There isn't. So what gave you this idea? Well, it's, um, it's connected to a book that came out a couple of years ago called Her Perilous Mansion, which is uh, a similar kind of story. This one's about two kids who are trapped in a house uh, that may or may not be haunted, uh, and they're trying to escape from that house. And... Uh, it's set in a, a version of the 19th century that has magic. It's based very much on Irish landscapes, which I did a lot of research into, uh, landscapes and houses. And each of the books has a sort of an embedded political message. So in the first one, it's how even the most well-meaning or accidental words can, can stick and have terrible unintended consequences. And uh, the second book is about... Um, wealth injustice and injustices of all kinds so they all these books are set in a landscape that i really love uh, they involve kids who i find endlessly fascinating and interesting and inventive and funny and amazing and brave and all those incredible things uh, but there's there's something that i very much want to say in these books as well um for uh for uh, readers young and old about our world as much as uh, fantasy worlds as well. And I, I tend not to be very political in my books and you could read these books without even engaging with the politics, but uh, uh, these books are very important to me because I feel like I'm trying to say something that actually matters today. Now, I want to come back to the latest book, Honour Among Ghosts, but I'd love to give listeners some context as to if you can cast your mind back a billion novels ago because <laughs> really you have written so much. You've published over 50 books. You've had a billion short stories. You've had, you've co-written books. You've written, we'll get into that, but you've written so much. But try to cast your mind back to when you first started writing. What were you doing then? And what was, did you always want to write? How did you get into writing? Oh, look, I started writing when I was very, very young um, in grade three. Uh, I, have my, I have my grade fee, three composition book where we used to write stories and they're, uh, they're full of little stories about me meeting ghosts or being shrunk down so I'm dealing with giant ants or gravity's turned off so I float up into the sky. So I've always been engaged with telling stories because I've always loved stories. I loved reading stories. My parents were huge readers. Uh, and uh, they never put any limits on what I could read. They were both school teachers, so the house was full of books. And if I was interested in reading a book, they would let me, even if, even if you know, it looked adult on the surface. They would, they would let me find my own level of reading. So uh, I've, I've been writing ever since I was a child. Wrote a bunch of books in high school when I should have been doing my homework. Uh, none of those were published. They were all terrible, but they were great practice. And um, 
uh, again, full of magical, fantastical things and lots of teenage angst as well. But later in my 20s, I decided that I want to give being a writer a really solid crack. I gave myself 10 years in, uh, what year was it? 1990. I said um, to myself, uh, I'm going to drop out of university. That's never a good strategy. <laughs> I was doing economics, so it didn't seem very relevant at the time. I will uh, devote myself to writing full-time for 10 years. And if I haven't sold a novel within 10 years, I'll have to give up and go back and finish that economics degree. Because obviously, you know, 10 years, there's that old Japanese saying, uh, I think it's Japanese, um, it takes even a thief to learn, it takes even a thief 10 years to learn her trade. And I thought, well, you know, I've been writing my, most of my life. If I if I give myself 10 years and still can't do it, then maybe I'm just kidding myself. So, um, and I always wanted to be, to support myself as a writer, to be a professional writer, hence the need to sell a novel. It's very hard to make a living just selling short stories. I can't do that anymore. Uh, so selling a novel was the touchstone and I managed that in five years. And uh, within 10 years, I was a self-supporting writer. So I kind of made that dream come true by working really, really hard, <laughs> writing lots of books. I love it. And also based on what you just said, though, about your childhood, not only were you into writing, you were into the fantastical, you were into sci-fi, you were into ghosts, you were into those sorts of things. Why are you attracted to that? <laughs> That's a really good question. And it wasn't that I didn't try other things. Uh, I was drawn to those kind of stories. Like I was 10 years old when Star Wars came out. I was already watching Doctor Who at that point. My mum was studying uh, kids literature and she would feed me Ursula K. Le Guin books or Susan Cooper books, which I still read today because they're so amazing. Um, there was something very powerful about stories that featured things that weren't real. And now as an adult, now teaching at university level, I can see that what I was drawn to was the cool fantastical stuff but the way that the cool fantastical stuff related to the real world and what it could say about the real world what it could say so powerfully in stories that were fun and exciting um but while carrying a, a lesson a very important lesson about today um, neil gaiman likes to say that um every fantasy fantasy story is by necessity a, a metaphorical tale about today. And I, th I think that's very, very true. And whether you set out to write a story or read a story that's just an adventure story with dragons in it or robots or whatever, there'll be some level of commentary about the real world that is, for me as a reader, just that little bit more exciting and powerful because it's not looking like the real world. Um, it's, it's, it's part escapism, but part, escapism, but part very powerful uh, discourse with the reader as well. And I find that so exciting. So in addition to that, though, you also uh, write a lot for younger readers. Well, mm. you know, middle grades, YA, you write for um, predominantly a particular age group. And you said before, you, your eyes lit up when you talked about kids as just so intelligent and inventive <laughs> and exciting. Okay, Why the appeal for writing for that age group? There's several answers to that question. Uh, one is because as readers, a lot of things are new to them. So uh, you can catch them when they haven't read a thousand dragon stories and, uh, and they approach stories with such a fresh enthusiasm and love that's sometimes, sometimes drummed out of adult readers. It's uh, when you've read a thousand 
space opera novels say it's very hard to approach a, a story about spaceships and aliens and vast distances in the same kind of wonderful enthusiasm that kids will, will do. So, so there's that. Uh, kids are amazing critics as well. They love what they love and they can ex explain why they don't love what they don't love very, very clearly and very, very intelligently in a way that's very hard to argue with. So if you can catch a child reader, you know they are just loving your work and that, that's very, very rewarding. I also think kids are fun to write because they, they see the world uh, using all the kind of senses, the literary senses, um, that adult readers sort of sort of sort of forget about not entirely forget about the sense of belonging the sense of justice sense of danger sense of humor and and most importantly for the, the the speculative genres the sense of wonder that sense of wow this world is amazing which is often coupled with wow this world is really terrifying i think it's easier to to write with an audience that is tapping into those senses than it is for adults sometimes adults uh, uh can be can be very very coy about giving in to their emotions uh, we we love intellectual writing and i love this kind of writing too we love intellectual puzzles we love novels that speak to our very deeply layered cultural experiences where we've we're p picking over concepts and stories and themes that have been picked over many many times in literature and that is wonderful and i like writing that style too but there's a there's a very powerful intensity in in addressing what matters us matters to us as humans first and foremost and kids get that now you mentioned that you were 10 years old when you saw star wars for the first time and of course yes. everyone of a certain age who experienced that in their childhood it's such a seminal moment <laughs> 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 and yes. you have had the opportunity to write six novels in the star wars universe yes Oh my God. So <laughs> that's how I feel too. <laughs> Still. How did it first happen? And what did you think when you realized? What was happening? <laughs> yeah, they're really good questions that are still relevant. My inner 10 year old still goes, Oh my God, <laughs> did I really do this? And I, it, it's, it's kind of circular because I always wanted to write stories like Star Wars. I never thought I'd have the chance to write Star Wars novels. I read the Star Wars novels. The Alan Dean Foster novelizations of the Star Wars movies were real favorites of mine when I was growing up. And uh, uh, when I started to write professionally and uh, was selling science fiction novels, writing on something, something on that kind of scale was something that I really wanted to do. And I was writing then with a very dear friend of mine called Shane Dix, and we were writing our big space opera series. And our agent at the time, um, Richard Curtis in New York, he emailed me and said, would you be interested in writing Star Wars novels? And I said, yes, <laughs> yes, of course I would, Richard. <laughs> I would love to. And um, he said, great, I'll try and get you a deal. And it didn't happen overnight. It, um, it took about a year before an opening appeared, um, a... a they were writing a very big series called the New Jedi Order and uh, something went wrong in the middle of the series and they needed writers very quickly and they approached Richard, uh, our agent, and he said, well, I can recommend these guys. So I got a phone call at four in the morning uh, from Richard, who I'd never spoken to on the phone before. It had all, our business had all been conducted by email saying, do you still want the Star Wars deal? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, we'll ring this person, say yes to everything they say. And like within a few hours, I had a flight book to go to Skywalker Ranch to brainstorm what our books would be about. 
and, and it happened that quickly. So it was it was very much a hurry up and wait kind of uh, situation where uh, we were already doing work that fitted into that kind of style. Uh, and we were available when a need arose. And then suddenly it happened very, very quickly. And that's often the way it works with this kind of work. A need arises, an author is available. And that's kind of what happened later when I was adapting the computer games like The Force Unleashed. Mm. They, they would email me and say, oh, we've decided to do a book. Could you drop everything and do it now? And I'd go, sure, I can write a book in a month if it's a Star Wars novel, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, okay, so you go to Skywalker Ranch. Is the expectation that you have such a deep knowledge of the lore of Star Wars <laughs> or do they give you like a compendium of, or something? Oh, yeah, they, <laughs> they gave me all sorts of encyclopedias and other books to read. Anything I wanted I could I could get uh, in written form. But they also had an expert there. Uh, Leland Chi was like the guru who knew everything. Uh, so, and this was part of the problem. When I finally sat down to write the first book in this series, you asked what it was like before, and I didn't answer this question. It was actually really, really hard. I, I thought that I knew Star Wars. I knew the tone of Star Wars, and I knew what kind of stories uh, fitted into the Star Wars universe. But um, actually sitting down to write one, I found very, very difficult because I had to ask myself, had Princess Leia ever been to this particular planet? Uh, what did they speak there? Uh, what food did they eat? What did the world look like? All this kind of stuff. And I I could email Leland Chi to ask this kind of stuff, but he's in America, I'm in Australia, I just need to get on with telling the story. And a, a very good friend of mine, Jonathan Strahan, who I complained to, uh, he said, well, you're making the mistake of thinking that you're writing fiction. And I said, well, what else am I writing? It's, it's not real. And he said, well, if you treat it like writing non nonfiction, you will find it easier because then there are all these references. There are all these sources. You can tell the story, but you can fit the facts in later, like sometimes you do when you're fact-checking a nonfiction piece. And that kind of gave me permission to, to work in this universe. Uh, but I was constantly aware that I was writing lines for characters that I loved, but also lines for characters that millions of people loved out there and that I was writing for them. I was writing for my inner 10-year-old, but I was also writing uh, for this very large audience of people to whom these stories mattered a great deal. And uh, uh, it was a wonderful fandom to kind of plug into and to engage what with. What an incredible, and, uh, incredible experience. And an incredible honour too, it was oh. to, to be entrusted with these characters <laughs> and these stories. I, I've been so fortunate. Yes. Now, you have also um, co-written books. Mm. You've done quite a number with Garth Nix. Yep. Can you talk to me about the actual practical process of collaboration, how do you divide it up? How do you <laughs> determine who does what in when you're collaborating in a book that way? I think all collaborations come down to the quest, the several several key questions, and one of them is, you know, who's good at what and and who enjoys what the most. And uh, I really like writing first drafts, so. Uh, most of my collaborations have worked in that way. Working with Garth, we, our method was that um, we would, because we, we've been friends for 25 years now and we, we get together a lot and uh, we would use some of that time discussing what our story would be. Uh, and then we'd go our separate ways and bounce an outline backwards and forwards and that would become a chapter outline. Uh, once we'd agreed on a story, he would write the opening chapter because he really likes openings and is very good at openings. Then I would go away and write the rest more or less following the outline and occasionally ringing Garth and saying, I don't think chapter 323 will work anymore. Uh, do you mind if I do this? Or sometimes I would just surprise him. Uh, and then he would get the completed draft. Uh, and because he used to be an editor uh, and he loves editing. So 
uh, but sometimes found writing first drafts a bit of a chore. So he would have the fun of writing the beginning and have the fun of receiving a completed manuscript some months later that he would then get to fix. And then we would bounce the manuscript backwards and forwards until we were both completely happy with everything. And by then we'd have forgotten who wrote what and who had what idea. And uh, so that was how we worked. Um, with Shane Dix, it was something similar. I would do the first draft and then he would he would edit it later. Um, I wrote with another, another Sean Williams, uh, a, another writer called Sean E. Williams, who's a comic book writer. He would write the first draft and then I would edit it. So there's lots of different ways to do it. Some people go chapter by chapter. Mm. Uh, there's no right way, it's just what works, what works for the partnership. And Garth and I wrote, oh, um, over 10 books together so I guess mm. it worked and we had a lot of fun doing that and it was wonderful collaborating because um, uh, it was nice to go and tour together for a start because touring can be quite lonely uh, but it also gave us company because writing can be very solitary and very lonely at times and uh, it was nice to have somebody to have an excuse to ring up somebody and say hey I need to talk about this idea from the book but let's also have a chat about you know life in general, yes, so it was good. So, because yes, writing is a very solitary thing. So, when you are writing mm. the books on your own, your mm. your your own books, yes, do you have a? And you're in the depths of the actual writing. Do you have a routine, or you know, a particular um, uh, a, a, a word count that you want to hit, or anything like that in your daily life? I used to be a big 1500 words a day guy. And that was partly because uh, when I sold the Star Wars deal, I already had two other contracts for two other trilogies. So I had to write four books a year. <gasps> and I could do that by writing 1500 words a day. Uh, and I realized that I could do that. And the books turned out well. I mean, there were bestsellers and award winners, so it wasn't hurting the quality very much. Um, but as I've got older and as the physical consequences of writing that many words, uh, came home to roost, as it were, you know, with, in terms of RSI and chronic pain, I've kind of had to slow down a little bit. And uh, I tend not to write like that anymore. A thousand words a day or less is good, depending on uh, depending on various commitments. I teach at uh, Flinders University now, so I, I have teaching commitments and other research commitments. So I, I'm a lot slower than I used to be, but I still like writing in the mornings. I like getting up in the morning, getting rid of my email, writing until you know, maybe I've written somewhere between 500 to 1,000 words or feel like I'm getting a bit stuck and then putting it down for the day, coming back to it the next day. Or if I'm busy at work, writing on weekends or evenings, like a lot of people do, writing on top of their full-time job. But, yeah, mornings are, mornings are great for me. When I was really young, I used to write till like 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm too old to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> so when you are writing, like what actually let's take the latest book. Yes. Honor Among Ghosts. So after you, the ideas started forming in, in your head and you kind of had the premise, how mm. much of the story did you know before you started writing? Um, or are you one of these people where it just <laughs> comes out, you know, when it comes out, out of your I've brain? I've tried pantsing and I've tried plotting and I find over-plotting very boring. I get bored if I know too much. I find pantsing very difficult at novel form because I get lost and spend a lot of waste a lot of time going down dead ends. I like to have a mixture of the two. So I like to I like to know where the story is going to end, and I like to have a few key points along the way. Um, uh, but I like to have enough room to to change my mind if I want to uh, within the confines of that outline. Uh, so it's a little bit like. 
uh, performing jazz on an old standard, except it's not an old standard, it's a new standard, but um, uh, I'd like to have a, a, the opportunity to play while knowing where I'm going. So, uh, and it varies from book to book. Some books I have a, only a very vague idea of how it's going to end, but for Honor Among, Honor, Honor Among Ghosts, I knew how it was going to end, uh, but not, not entirely. There was little moments that I didn't see coming because those little moments that happen spontaneously through the writing are sometimes, for me, like the best moments in mm. a story. But because uh, there's just because you had a great idea when you started a story doesn't mean that you won't have a better idea while you're writing it. And I want to leave space for those better ideas. Mm. Now, let's just take a slight detour here because you just <laughs> said it's like playing jazz. Oh. And you are also, as if you couldn't do enough amazing things, you are also a musician. <laughs> Talk yes. to me about that. <laughs> so I um, I studied music at high school and I discovered I was, I really liked it and I did really well at it. I won a Young Composers Award when I was 17 and everybody assumed I was going to go to university to study at the, the conservatory at university, university of Adelaide. Um, but I was more interested in being a writer, um, so I decided to do that instead. But music has always been kind of nibbling away at the corners of my my life. And um, when I was suffering from RSI and had to slow down my writing, I was thinking, well, what what can I do that's creative that won't won't tie me to a computer? And somehow I ended up making a music, which of course ties me to a computer just as much. So, but it's a different kind of way of processing and. Um, uh, particularly during COVID, I found it a very useful way of managing stress and depression and uh, other things, other negative impacts that were caused by, you know, me getting old. And uh, <laughs> so uh, a lot of the energy that I channeled into writing got channeled into making music instead. My music is very ambient, has no lyrics, mm. very rarely has beats. Uh, it's the kind of music that I like writing to. Um, so I could uh, be working on a piece of music that I would then play while I was working, either doing university work or working on fiction. Uh, and it it's... is actually great for writing. Oh, great! Oh, good. It's, I hope it's very. It's a very good. Um, yeah, absolutely. I can see how it's really good for writing. So I'm wondering if you were subconsciously trying to create that environment. Definitely, I think so. I, th I think and, uh, subconsciously and consciously, because well, yes, yes. <laughs> there's no shortage of that kind of music. All the music, all the artists that I love are still making music. But I think I was trying to make something that was a very safe space for me to exist in, whether I was creating or working. And a lot of these, these, well, all the music has uh, have have really personal connections to me. So the my first album that came out through Project Records. Um, which is called Isolation, came out during COVID. And it was based on cassette recordings that I made when I was 15. And I, I can't play anything very well. So I was just making a lot of strange noises and recording on them cassettes and, and, and calling them albums. And I, those recordings still exist. I still have them and I dragged them out. I sampled them. I did all sorts of processing on them uh, on my computer and, and that became the album. So it's kind of like the music that that I'm making now that's deeply connected to me at 15. So very, so very cool. personal. <laughs> that is so cool. Now, while we're detouring, I'd like to still detour <laughs> to, I know this happened, you know, almost 10 years ago now, but um, <laughs> you participated in a sleep study. <laughs> I did, yes. To see what effect sleep would have on your 
creativity. I haven't actually read the results of that study. Do you? Can you <laughs> summarise them? It was a really interesting experiment, and it happened because I was sitting across the table from somebody at a wedding who thought it sounded like a crazy idea, crazy enough that it might be interesting. So she um, stuck me and another novelist and a, a multimedia artist and a visual artist into the, a sleep study. It was a week-long study. Uh, where we had no access to clocks or windows or the internet uh, or any connection to the outside world. We were wired up when we slept and we were told when to go to sleep, when to wake up, when to eat, uh, in order to see what effect uh, that kind of intense control on your life would have on writing as well. And we also, we were tested constantly. So we did all these terrible tests, uh, the psychomotor volition response pvr i forget what it's called that was the one we all hated because it was just so awful and what i found in this environment was that i very quickly went a little bit mad because uh, i didn't know what time it was or what day it was and we were we became very obsessed with trying to find out clues from the outside and it was very hard uh, and i found that for the first two or three days, uh, everything was so new and novel and strange that I wasn't getting any ideas to write anything. Uh, but then once I'd kind of bedded down in that environment, I did write a story and I wrote one of the stories I'm most, uh, most proud of uh, that was inspired by my time in there um, called uh, Death and the Hobbyist, which you can find online uh, if you're interested in reading about it. And, and then once I'd written the story and was still stuck in this space and felt like I'd been there for a month, uh, everything creative kind of dried up and withered up and I had nothing. I felt like I was dying inside a little bit. Uh, and I don't know if I would have written anything after that point because everything became such a routine, so same, so nothing, so stressful in its nothingness, mm -hmm. a bit like being in solitary confinement, a lot like being in solitary confinement, except we volunteered for this. Uh, and then finally they let, let us out and, uh, the echoes of that experience still sort of ripple. Uh, my diary is available online. You can see me going slightly mad in my diary. Uh, and we really needed psychological counselling afterwards, but we didn't get it. So we're, it was a fascinating experience that I'll touch on again in my writing at some point. I quite like these experiences where you're completely safe. We were completely safe. We were all monitored. There were, there were scientists all around us. If we had gone overly mad, they would have rescued us and treated us. Um, but it was still my choice to do something strange and exotic. And uh, same with going to Antarctica. So when I with the, the Australian Antarctic Fellow uh, through the Antarctic Division in 2017, it's a very, very dangerous environment uh, and, and very confronting in lots of ways. Uh, but I was still completely safe. So that's a lot of people climb mountains. A lot of people go hang gliding. I'm too lazy to that kind of stuff, but I'll stick myself in a sleep study. I'll go to Antarctica, <laughs> you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll explore old Parliament House in the middle of the night looking for ghosts. You know, th that's my kind of sort of stimulation that I, I love getting as a writer. Oh, my God. All right. Well, coming back to ghosts, to, ah, to the latest book. That was um, a good segue. <laughs> that was, yeah. So, you know, um, thank you for that detour. But with, <laughs> with your fantastic new book, um, latest book, I'd like to talk about the characterizations and your process, you, just using this as the mm. example, your process of developing characters um, and, and you know, their backgrounds and their personalities and what they're about and what they represent. Do you just do that 
organically as you write <laughs> or do you think about it beforehand? There's a certain amount of thought that happens beforehand. I have to know that I've got a character that I'll be interested to write about. Um, uh, but a lot of it happens on the fly and, uh, and then even more is done while editing. So, uh, the first draft is very much a journey of discovery in terms of character. Uh, and then the second and third drafts are all about taking what I've discovered in the process and uh, what works, uh, expand and build on, um, and what doesn't work gets cut. And uh, I quite like that process. That's part of the what I like to discover while I'm writing the story is is very much about character and characters' voices, and but there are some things I know. You know, I always know uh, what the characters want, but I don't do the. A lot of people create sheets and charts mm. and genealogies and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't do that uh, when I'm starting a book, uh, unless unless they're recurring characters. So um, sometimes you know you need to know that stuff if you're writing the third book in a series and they've got a history that is already in on on the page that's a different kind of experience but there's still journeys of discoveries to be made as those characters get older and go through more crises and meet new people particularly if they're young people and they're growing older with each with each story uh i love that that journey of getting to know somebody through fiction i find that mm. Uh, I find that quite, I don't believe that my characters are real people outside of me, but I do feel like I'm getting to know them, getting to know new people and making friends with them. And I find it very hard to make them do bad things because, because <laughs> I love them. I'm, I'm not very good at writing villains because I, I think everybody's good. <laughs> uh, but sometimes that's fun to try and find, um, like the magistrate in mm. Honor Among Ghosts is a villain. She's definitely a villain, but she has her own motivations and she has her own reasons. She doesn't see herself as the villain. She sees herself as a good person person um, dealing with all these pesky kids <laughs> uh, but now that made it interesting to write now that this book is out in the world are you already writing your next one well I'm about to go to Ireland in about three weeks I'll go back to Ireland so uh, Her Perilous Mansion was written uh, in 2018 when I was living there for a year and then Honor Among Ghosts uh, I did the research for that when I was there just before lockdown we, we got back just as the world shut down and I've been waiting to go back to research a third book set in this world. Um, if I get to write it, it'll be called Hidden in the Castle, assuming my publisher agrees. So I'll be researching lots of Irish castles. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about that. But I've also got a, um, uh, a book set in Antarctica that I want to write. So I'm hoping to go back to Antarctica at the end of next year. Um, I have... I've got so many books that I want to write. I think every writer's probably like this. I've got a list of books and I'm used to being able to just drop everything and write them whenever I want. But now that I've got a, a day job, I have to kind of fit it in around around teaching and, and other commitments. So so um, how do you know which one? Because you've got a day job, right? You've got yeah. so many ideas. You can't possibly <laughs> pursue them all at the same time. So no. how do you pick? Well, the Antarctica one I was, I'm going to write while I'm in Antarctica. So I was going to winter next year. So I was going to write the book then. So that was my book for next year. Uh, but my wintering, my overwintering trip, I wasn't quite medically fit enough to go. So I'll have to make that a summer trip instead. So that pushes that book out to the end of next year, uh, which opens up a gap. And the book that I really want to write next is the next book set in this particular world, the another sidequel. Um, they're not really sequels, so you can read Her Perilous Mansion and Honor Among mm. Ghosts in any order. Uh, but the third one I'm very keen to get to because there's a particular character uh, that I want to explore uh, quite badly and resolve that story. Um, 
So that's that's how I decide it. I think it's the stories that I most want to write. Sometimes it's what my publisher wants next. Um, mm -hmm. They might they might not want that book next. They might want another book instead, in which case I might write another one. Uh, because I do like writing, writing lots of different things. There's a space opera I want to write, an adult space opera. There's a there's a bunch of teenage fantasies I want to write. There's a crime novel I want to write. You know, there's always there's always oh something God. that I want to do. It's just whatever I most want to do. <laughs> All right. So we always end with what your I'm going to do a variation on our usual question because the usual mm -hmm. question is what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who would want to be in a position where you are one day? But mm. really, because of your um, love of all things fantastical. Um, what would your top three tips be for aspiring writers to make those worlds and stories really real and resonate with readers? Oh, they're great questions. But can I just say, if anybody wants a, an answer to the the other questions, if you put in my name and put in ten and a half commandments and the conversation, you'll find my list of the ten and a half commandments, which apply to all writers. Fantastic. Uh, so. Number one for making the fantastic feel real and immediate is base it on something real, uh, base it on something real from your life. Um, so my first fantasy novel, uh, The Stone Mage and the Sea, was very much based on landscapes that I grew up in on the southwest coast of South Australia. And it worked because of that, because I could smell the air and taste the salt and uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, oh, all right, that's number one. Maybe that's number one, two, and three. No. Because <laughs> uh, it's so important. Um, people talk about magic systems and that kind of stuff. I don't think that should be in the top three. Uh, well, let's break it down to uh, the landscape has to be somewhere you know. Uh, the people have to be real people. So... Uh, the characters in your story, just because you're writing about magicians and, I don't know, dragons and gods and goddesses and robots, they still have to be real people with recognisable desires, uh, recognisable stakes. They still have to be human enough for uh, an audience to relate to, to really care for. So they still, they have to be real too, um, whether they're based on real people or not. And the third one, it, it, it has to be about something real as well. So, uh, I mean, Star Wars is, is a Western um, based on consciously on Westerns and Japanese takes on Westerns, but it's still about things that really matter, like redemption and um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, coming of age. It's still about real things. Um, but fantasy and science fiction, the speculative fictions can be about anything that exists in the real world. They can be about inequality. They can be about the Second Amendment. They can be about women's rights. They can be about... Uh, oh romance you know between two people they can be about uh euthanasia they can be about things that really matter today and i think they they should be so that would be my three things real places real people real issues i love it thank you so much congratulations on honor among ghosts and thank you so much for your time today sean thanks valerie thanks for the wonderful chat all right, we've now come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to hang out with you. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, I would really appreciate it if you could take 30 seconds to leave uh, the podcast a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or the app of your choice, because it really helps us 
uh, in the rankings and for other people to discover us. And I would really love to spread the word about the world of writing. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm also at ValerieKoo.com where um, I live my other life as a visual artist. But also please do join the Facebook group. That's a fantastic community. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.